constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And today, I feel lucky to be uh, joined by colleague, friend, and um, and uh, all-around good person, Megan Pollack. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thanks, Dave. Really glad to be here with you. Yeah, and so we've uh, known each other a while and worked together, and... Uh, and uh, your um, now your background is uh, you're an engineer, you computer scientist, an engineering educator, an equity professional. But um, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit better before we jump into uh, technical content. So let's go back in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that you put you on your current path? Well, I, like many women who are in STEM pathways, so science, technology, engineering, and math, had some pretty big influences as a child growing up. Uh, My dad's a computer scientist. His dad's a computer scientist. And I had some pretty amazing teachers at Little Cypress Mauriceville High School in Orange, Texas, who gave us some really awesome opportunities to learn, start learning computer science programming, uh, learned QBasic in eighth grade, and then went on to continue learning C++ all the way through school, and did robotics, and, you know, took every AP math and science class that was available to me. Um, but the interesting thing is, is despite all of those opportunities and my love for those things, I really didn't see myself going into STEM or going into any kind of engineering. And that was because when I looked around me in Southeast Texas, all the engineers and computer scientists that I knew didn't look like me. Uh, they looked a lot like my dad, uh, white guys who uh, who were doing work that in many cases didn't look that exciting. In Southeast Texas, there's lots of chemical plants and refineries and paper mills, and they worked hard lives and in stinky places. And that wasn't something that looked interesting to me. Mm. And so I had chosen something totally different. Um, but then in sort of the last draw, the, the week of my graduating year, I was sort of passing by and my high school chemistry teacher mentioned an opportunity to me and uh, it was to go on and study computer science and electrical engineering and uh, do some work with Texas Instruments and it came with a full scholarship and she said to me, Megan, you would be great at this. She says, you've taken all these classes, you're interested in this content, this is for you. And that, in that moment, it really changed my trajectory. I was off to study interior design, and in that moment, I changed everything and uh, went to study computer science and engineering and had uh, some fun doing engineering work at Texas Instruments throughout all of that and a little bit afterwards as well. Well, that was my path. Wow. And that's such a nice story. Um, so there's there's a mentoring element. There's a... There's a financial component. There's a, um, 
yeah, the mentoring component came with um, an identity piece. Wow, there's just so many pieces. There's so many, um, and 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 thinking back to that moment, what uh, you know, you 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 had your path. Um, kind of worked out and here was this big change was uh, in what ways was that an easy decision or a hard decision and and um, what did it's maybe hard to think back that far but what was that decision like well I knew I needed a college scholarship so that was a that was a really big uh, drive okay but but the truth was is I really did love STEM subjects. I, I love them. Like I was, you know, doing so much of the robotics work and I would like write computer programs on their weekends and show them off to my dad. And so I loved this stuff. And all I needed was that teacher, her name is Dr. Terry Estes, to tell me, this is for you. Because I didn't see that that was a possibility for me. It wasn't because my parents told me, you shouldn't be an engineer. Like that's not for you. Like they were always and always have been and still are incredibly encouraging of yeah. any sort of pursuit. But it was the the larger society, these sort of subtle messages that said that this isn't a path that's appropriate for you. Uh, despite my interest, despite despite the fact that I was, you know, ended up being just shy of the top of my class by a hundredth of a point. You know, so like I was totally equipped, but I still didn't see myself in that, and I needed that push that the. That encouragement from Dr. Estes to boost my self-efficacy that ultimately changed my behavior and my life trajectory. Hmm. And and maybe this you've already answered it in in the opening question, but uh, you know on this show we're interested in what Mark Somerville and I have called unleashing experiences, where someone uh, trusts or either someone trusts you or you trust yourself. Um, to have the courage to go your own way, and and there seems to me there are any number of times in your career where you have gone uh, a different way or an, a, a not a well trodden path. So, um, who or who or what has has helped give you the courage to go your own way in your career? Well, I think the patience of all of my college advisors, <laughs> because I've never done what they told me to do. Um, I really felt compelled to craft my own education and to make make those studies all through all of my degrees what I needed it to be. And um, there were a lot of people that didn't think that my path was the best, um, but I've had them come back in the end and tell me that, you know, you really did do okay, you figured it out. <laughs> we were scared, we didn't think you'd come back. Um, so I think the truth is, is just really embedding a strong self-efficacy and courage, uh, and then having people who trusted me. I've had, I've been really fortunate to have excellent uh, educators all through my K-12 experience at Texas Women's University and at Texas Tech and at Purdue. And these are people who cared about my success and wanted to give me enough room to grow. And um, sometimes they wanted to shorten the leash, uh, but that's because they cared enough. And uh, so I think that there were many experiences throughout my education and my life that were it was just another, another unleashing to let me go and to figure it out. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'm hearing as on part of what I'm hearing is uh, so actually you told, you know, so that sometimes these these things come in pairs. The unleashing uh, comes in um, in a can come in a pair with uh, um, obedience or discipline. And uh, it's the combination of the two. So to what extent are we disciplined? To what extent are we 
unafraid and have the courage to do things that are a bit scary and they're both and they sort of need each other and i'm hearing um i'm i'm hearing some of the some of the stories were about the um people encouraging you to be more disciplined or to to um to to go in the more conventional paths paths at times and that that actually unleashing wasn't difficult for you, but sometimes the path of following what um, convention was tough. Is, anyways, I, am I reading too much into that, or how do no, you react I think to what it's I just true. said? I, my personality has always been, you know, ask forgiveness, not permission. Sometimes yeah. that gets me in trouble, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but Amen. it really it really comes down to the trust of those people who are on the other end of that leash and. Um, and at some point they, they have let it go, right? Because they trust it. And it's, it's because I still was working hard and still doing the basic things I needed to do. Um, but you know, sometimes those leashes that our educators have on students, they're, they're well-meaning, right? Like they're trying to provide that structure that they think that you need, but our students, our students are going to succeed in um, more remarkable ways when they get to be invested in the creation of their education. And there's tons of literature that backs that up. Uh, My experience certainly um, qualifies that as well. And, um, and, and now I, I feel very good about my three very different degrees and to some, to some element, I'm using all of the things that I learned from those experiences in what I'm doing because I was able to craft the yeah. experiences uh, that allowed me to personalize my learning. Yeah. And um, also when we met, I recall at the time that you were um, pretty heavy duty into your, your athletic endeavors, which involved uh, powerlifting. And uh, so I'm curious the extent to which um, um you know, in what ways uh, has that training and competition uh, affected you as a learner and educator and professional? Yeah, so I started competing in powerlifting as a freshman in high school and um, competed through high school, won state and nationals in Texas as a junior. And uh, had some, I've had a few injuries throughout. Uh, I have officially retired for the third and final time because of <laughs> injuries. Uh, who knows? Maybe there will be a miracle and I'll come back. Um, but, yeah, so what I learned from being a competitive athlete and, and what is generally a solo sport, mainly because I was the only girl on my team in high school, so it was a solo sport. But I learned about hard work and setting proximal goals in ways that education alone had could never have taught me. Uh, because when you go in the gym and you're having to set, you know, I want to break that state record, I want to beat that person, you're setting, you have to make a plan. Um, my coach from high school and dear friend and uh, just wonderful person, uh, Coach Mike Denman, who still to this day trains tons and tons of kids and makes leaders out of them. He would always quote the, I think it's, I think it's a Margaret Thatcher quote, quote but essentially, you know, make a plan, work the plan. And, uh, and I have come back to that throughout everything in my life. And that sport taught me how to make a plan and work the plan every day, um, throughout every season. And, um, and the, the skills that I learned from that just really translated well into my own life and profession as well. Yeah. And 
And uh, we met at the opening moments of the organization formerly known as uh, Big Beacon, or I guess still still uh, called Big Beacon. But um, And at the time, you were finishing a PhD in engineering education at Purdue. And I'm I'm curious what the you know what are some of the biggest takeaways? That's a bit of a um, a, a different kind of PhD in engineering. It's not been Purdue was uh, the first uh, engineering education PhD program I think in the world, and and um, and and you were a fairly early graduate from it. So what uh, what are your biggest takeaways from that educational experience? I, my education at Purdue was really phenomenal, and I say that because we had all teachers who cared about being the best teachers. Like, that's what they were teaching us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just don't think I could have had a better set of educators. Um, I think that I always sort of jokingly say that, from my, I can only speak from my experience, but I felt like they took a bunch of engineers, you know, quantitative thinkers and turned us into social scientists to some degree because now we are studying how to engineer engineers and to engineer learning environments that make the best kinds of uh, workers for our workforce. And um, it, was, it was really fun. I, I am grateful for the the leadership that, that Purdue had just from from my committee and the sort of foresight to create such a unique program. Um, there's certainly there were there are implications of getting a PhD in engineering education um, as far as getting faculty positions in some cases. Uh, and you know as more and more of us graduate, there are you know trying more schools are creating opportunities for trained engineering educators to to go into the workforce. And, um, and so that, so there's not enough jobs for all of us to be in academia. So I'll just put it like that. Uh, and not all of us need to go into academia, right? Uh, I've had colleagues who've gone back into industry using their, their training to train engineers in the workplace. And, uh, and so there's so many different opportunities to use this education. And, um, I think Purdue, again, Purdue's another example who, um, maybe reluctantly uh, let me go on a really long leash. Um, (laughs) But I really pushed back on some of the boundaries because I wasn't pursuing uh, at the time an academic career. And so I got to craft my education and I was running a consulting business that I was able to sort of, I was really able to apply what I was learning in that context. and, um, And being around other people, other engineers who are trying to, to move this space forward, that was really rewarding. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, and and so in listening, I, you know, I saw I, I heard the polarity between sort of technical education and social science or or, or um, uh, more humanist social science kinds of education in there. I heard that, and then I just heard the polarity between sort of academic kinds of learning and scholarship versus practice and applied. And of course, you went off in the more practical uh, domain to go out into the world as as part of your um, um, your work with um, NAEP. I was thinking about my own experience of kind of balancing that those two polarities by going and becoming a leadership coach that it was it felt it felt right to round the technical uh, and academic side of you know getting a PhD in engineering with that other stuff, it felt 
it didn't feel like completion as a human being, but it felt like more complete. It felt like less narrow. It felt um, like covering more more of the bases. Comment. Yeah, so I think that um, when we create sort of narrow views of what we are supposed to be as an engineer uh, for ourselves or for others, we really limit the potential of our contributions to this world, to our jobs, and creating space for us to be whole individuals um, and to bring our authentic selves to the workplace, whatever workplace that might yep. be, um, yeah. we're going to be better, uh, we're going to be better contributors to, to the good in this world, whether that's a new widget um, or or creating space for more people to see themselves in careers, uh, whatever yeah. that might be. Yeah. And so when you, as you finished your PhD and you had, as you mentioned, you had consulting firm going on while you were doing your PhD, but um, you took a position with NAEP, the National Alliance for Partnerships and Equity. What attracted you to that organization? Well, I had worked with Nate for several years before, like throughout my PhD, doing consulting work for them. And I had a couple of opportunities for work after after graduating. Um, but with Nate, I knew that I could step into that role and have a better, a bigger national impact than any other role that was offered to me. And, and that has proven to be the case. And so what I like about Nate is we... As an organization, we work with education, educators and institutions across the country working to improve access, equity, and diversity in education and the workforce. And it's incredibly rewarding to know that I, I get to work with educators and I get to initiate change that allows every student to see their potential and, and careers such as STEM or in career and technical education, which are all rewarding careers so everyone should have a chance to at least consider. Yeah. And let's take a we'll take a little bit of a break and come back and talk a little bit more about your current role at NAEP and then talk a talk a little bit more generally about uh, equity and engineering. How about that? Sounds good. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Megan Pollock and stay with us and um, we'll talk uh, we'll talk about uh, NAEP and and uh, equity and in engineering in our next segment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates at 3Joy.com. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership facilitation to help transform your organization. And uh, just a reminder, you can ask, uh, ask questions or make comments on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And we're back with uh, Megan Pollock. And Megan, we were we were talking about uh, your uh, taking, um, after your PhD at Purdue, taking this uh, position at at uh, NAPA, what is it that you uh, what is it that you do with NAPA? Well, I do a lot of things. <laughs> We're a small organization, and so like many nonprofits with small teams, uh, the the work that we do is is broad. Primarily, as an as an organization, we provide professional development uh, to educators and to institutions, really helping them to address change. And we address that from a couple of different ways. Um, one of the, the programs that we have in sets of curriculum is really helping educators to recognize the, the ways that they can help to transform the learning environments to which, they, to which they teach that can create more equitable environments for every student to succeed. Um, we, we don't just work with STEM and career and technical education pathways. However, we have worked with, within those spaces mostly um, and because we are so much workforce driven and uh, the principles of creating educational equity have been really manifested within those two those two sets of careers because of the disparity of women and students of color within those pathways um, but then aside from teacher professional development and, and uh, faculty professional development around transforming their own practice that is focused on student success, mind you, right? Like it's not, we're not coming in saying you're wrong, you're broken. We're coming in saying, hey, do you want your students to succeed in your classroom? And I've never had a teacher not raise their hand. Um, And so we come on with really practical strategies that are grounded in the literature um, and help them to recognize what are the sort of nuanced ways that we can make change and what are some of the bigger ways that we can make change that help our students succeed. Uh, And where this is really beneficial is when we when we do these things that in many cases are it's good teaching, um, but it's also creating an awareness of the needs of each and every one of our students and how we play a role in unintentionally creating um, barriers in the classroom yeah. that are, are not allowing every student to succeed. And when we sort of shine a light on those things and learn how to deconstruct those barriers, uh, the research is clear that every student improves, not just those marginalized students or the, the females or the students of color. Like when we implement these good practices, all of our students do better. And that's shown both in uh, the secondary and post-secondary pathways. Uh, that when we begin to really focus on creating better spaces for students to learn, every student succeeds. Uh, and so we also come in and do professional development around sort of institutional change and helping them to recognize what are some of the, the, the sort of institutionalized and systemic issues that are creating some of the disparities of participation and completion of students in these pathways. And so uh, those are two different kinds of approaches. And um 
that we, the, the services that we provide. And we have lots of amazing resources that help educators to transform their practice that are, um, that our portfolio has is, is really grown over the last few years. And I'm really proud of that work because it's making a big difference uh, within, within education. And these things that we teach that help us to recognize the power of words and the power of um, our interactions with others, it's not just good for, for educators. It's good for us as human beings. <laughs> it helps us to be better managers. It helps us to be better partners and better siblings. Um, and so these are really uh, fantastic principles that we've seen a lot of a lot of success with educators across the country. Um, in addition to that, I do lots of other cool things. You know, being an engineer, we stereotypically think that we can solve all the problems. Um, and so it's been a great opportunity for me to come into this small nonprofit and create systems and infrastructure that have allowed us to, to grow as a virtual organization um, because we have those systems in place that allow us to, to better understand our business and the operations. And so those are sort of the fun things I get to, to do when I'm not doing curriculum and teaching across the country. Yeah. And, and um it's a, so I, I and I and you and I have talked and I I think one of the reasons I've enjoyed hanging out with you is because of the positive uh, spin on this. So you know when uh, some of this work can get um, become pretty oppressive um, to listen to if if you're if you're on the 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 side that's been dominant. And so as a male, sometimes it's hard to listen. And actually, if you look. If you look nationally, I think we're doing some things wrong. We're we're getting fewer and fewer men to even think about going to college. The, the there's a gender imbalance in college as a whole uh, that's getting worse. And so there and so, um, um, what kind of microaggressions are being committed against against men? Um, is it seems to me as an increasing concern. But one of the things that I've I've enjoyed in our work is the emphasis on on um, personal initiative and and positive and understanding language more generally. Essentially, m- many of the things that are consistent with um, my training as a coach to to be better to be better listeners to be to notice and be more aware of the effect of uh, of language and. Uh, to ask better questions, so base and you alluded to it as sort of be better human beings. All these things are in some ways uh, um, they can. I think of them sometimes as human being one hundred and one, but I, they also they're sort of practitioner one hundred and one. And I think sometimes we're. I think one of the things that's really screwed up about engineering education is is uh, this idea that it's about a it's it's about this idea of applying physics and math to solving technical problems and that that's sort of you know when when people define engineering as applied math and science they're sort of missing this larger sense of practice as conversation and action which is kind of what we were talking about before i wonder how you might react to what i just said well these are certain polarities like 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 you said of you know how how rigorous is your training? How much yep. math and science do you yep. know versus yep. you know how how well can you look at the system and solve it? Um, I 
in my time as an engineer of working for DLP at Texas Instruments, yep. only once did I do a calculus problem. And I only did that to say I did it. <laughs> um, uh, now, I certainly use lots of, of math. Sure. You know, apply, sure, I sure, certainly applied lots of math and science in that setting. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really the, the emphasis of the work. We had to look at the systems and understand the problems and be creative and collaborate and solve these yeah. problems. Yeah. And um, I think that, that my, my training at Texas Tech preparing me to be a product engineer for TI really did that because, yeah, certainly we took all the yeah, – had a strong technical rigorous background, you know, that, that famous word of rigor, yeah. uh, but more, more so we were taught to problem solve and we were taught to collaborate and we were taught to look at the system and figure out how to solve it. And uh, so I, I always wonder like, where did these people go to school and who do they work for? Like if, if those, if those things aren't valued, then how how are they getting stuff done? Because it, I it wouldn't get done in in my experience if you didn't have these other skills. And if if we trained people to have these other skills at a greater um, and a and a better way, uh, what might we accomplish in addition to what we've already accomplished? You know. Yeah, and 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 um, yeah, and and I was alluding in particular when I use the term conversation and action to uh, Don Schoen's. Uh, great book in, I think in the 80s or whatever it was, reflect um, the reflective practitioner and the sense that this distinction between technical rationality is the dominant mode of teaching um, practice, whether it's architecture or social science or anything. It's like you learn the, quote, basics of the field, like you're saying, um, whether those basics are, are applied every day or not. Um, but, and, but the idea is you take this known stuff and apply it versus the point of view, um, which he called conversation in action or conversation with the situation that practice is actually this kind of engaging in conversation with sometimes with people and sometimes with circumstances to kind of iterate and go uh, and make moves uh, that uh, get you closer to something that's better in practice as opposed to this kind of once and for all solution that comes from the known math and physics or the known knowledge of the discipline. Um, and that, um, and Shun was arguing that conversation and action is sort of the way to go. But it, but I think a better way to view it is to think of, yeah, technical rationality is part of it. Uh, and we don't want, we don't want people, um, who, uh, doing being electrical engineers that don't know calculus or Maxwell's equations, but on the other hand, we also want them to be highly skilled in conversation with others and conversation with a larger situation to come up with solutions that are both good for people and and technically e- efficacious. And it just seems to me that that um, and we but we even the language that we use around those other the, the conversation and action we call them soft skills like somehow. They can't be rigorous, but done well, they're, um, the, the rigor comes in a different way. The rigor comes maybe from philosophy or other disciplines, but it, but it can't, you can be rigorous in, in those things. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about uh, the Purdue degree is that it takes that side of the ledger seriously. Comment. Yeah, so we read 
a lot of Shown's work at yeah. Purdue. And so I, I learned a lot about uh, reflecting on and reflecting in practice. And yeah. this is something that we do with educators at NAEP. And so we help them to to learn how to do action research for equity projects. And so as we when we have our larger comprehensive programs, the comprehensive educational equity programs that usually are a year, sometimes they're stretched over a couple of years, uh, we're teaching them to apply their work in their classrooms and iterate, right? So they're they're learning to reflect both in their practice as they're doing it and then reflect on that practice on like, okay, what worked? How did it work? How do we do it better next time? And it's such an, an incredible, the studies that, that we've had out of Baltimore has shown that the educators who have done these action research projects yep. have shown their students have done better. They've increased their own self-efficacy as educators. And so there's, yep. there's a lot of value in that. Yep. Um, and so we help provide those tools and strategies to allow them to do that. Because again, it's not just about the content that they're teaching, but we're giving them tools to, to figure out how do I transform my practice that helps my students succeed. And, um, and, and by doing that, and the iterative process, as Sean says, reflecting on and in the practice is really proving very fruitful. And so um, as engineers, we do this, right? <laughs> you know, we have an iterative process of problem solving. And by creating some intention around that, uh, we can certainly better measure and benchmark um, the changes that we want to make or we want to see. And as as these as as we work towards practice, and I think one of the things that's uh, so interesting about your work is that you're in a practical setting. The measures um, by you know that you hold yourself to, or whether these things are being driven into practice, and and um, uh, actually, yeah, I was I think it was with Barry Johnson once, and he used the term executive entertainment to describe a lot of a lot of development, you know, faculty development or professional development kinds of training and that's not we're not saying that about yours but it's a real problem because you you know so you can you can and I've, I've experienced this where you have this wonderful session where people are moved uh, you know sometimes to tears and great emotion and it's just you've got sort of good stuff happening in the moment of the session and then and and nothing happens of getting this stuff into practice and so and so you've had what we would have to call, you know, people were greatly entertained, even moved and, and so forth, but nothing really happens. How, how do you, how do you work to, to drive things into practice in your work at NAEP? Yeah. So when I first started doing um, designing curriculum for NAEP, I was still at, at, at Purdue and I remember teaching 200 people in uh, a school in Texas and they were all counselors and it was this great, of course, I thought it was great, you know, professional development. It was this full day. And, you know, I look at the evaluations afterwards and I'm like, yeah, well, this was a great day, but what do we do? And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, were you not listening? Yeah. Um, and what happened is, is they are busy. We are all busy. And what I needed to create for them was, were tangible takeaway tools and strategies that they could implement. And so that was the beginning of our portfolio of, of NAEP's toolkits. We have five toolkits that are uh, practical strategies that are driven by the research. And they are sort of workbook styles. That they are also the workbooks for our professional development, but they stand alone. And they come with really explicit strategies of like, here's what you do. Now, it's not a check 
list, right? Like it's not a, you do this, 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 and this will happen, but they are really practical takeaway strategies that educators can do. And we've seen that the educators appreciate that, right? Because we're taking the work, some of the work away from them of them having to go and, and figure out how to apply it to their job is we're helping to give them those applications so that they can go put it into practice. Because teachers are, in my experience, all overworked and uh, underpaid in many cases. And we want to make it as easy for them to implement these strategies. And so we've been doing that by our, our portfolio of toolkits that really lay out explicit strategies for improving student success. Yeah, and that's and and that's so interesting. And I was thinking about this question in connection with, um, and we were at the un, the uh, Big Beacon Unconference together in in um, at Mountaintop at uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, this summer. And I was thinking about this in connection with Kate Goodman's work on on tram, tra- transformative experience in engineering, and and some of the literature, previous literature on transformation, talks about um, that that something's transformative if you you kind of see it everywhere as a simple way to talk about it. It's like it it becomes ubiquitous. And I, I this is reflecting on my own learning. When someone hands me a cool tool, it's like you don't have to say another thing about it. It's like, oh, oh goody, I get to go apply this cool thing that I just learned. And but that's not how everyone learns. And so this I this kind of breaking it down so people see the ways in which things are are applicable rather than um yeah, so if you if you see beauty in theory, that's great, and 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 you can take things to application. But this this kind of breaking things down into chunk sizes where people can can uh, take it out into the field is really important. Absolutely, and uh, we we've been working again really hard to to create curriculum that isn't executive entertainment. We work hard to create learning environments that mimic what we're trying to teach, right? Like we're trying to help educators create those spaces and, and it's, and it is difficult. It takes effort and initiative. And so we're, we work um, our team to make sure that all of our professional development creates a space that models um, a kind of environment that helps everyone learn. Well, and that helps, but and and yet there's a certain sense in which there's resistance. You know, so many of the things that you teach and many of the things that I teach are countercultural. Mm-hmm. You know, so and so they go against the current culture, and so to do them is actually invites um, derision, ridicule, criticism. That's uh, the not that's not how we do it here. Response: How do you overcome that? Well, we certainly face that. I think that um, in the last year, we've seen an increase of outspokenness in our professional development on sort of, you know, misaligned opinions about about what we're trying to teach. Mm. And what we try to do is to ask more questions and help them to sort of unpack what it is that they're trying to say and think. And... uh, and again, without um, making them feel excluded from the group, just yeah. say, "Okay, all right. So this is what this is where you are. Let's keep moving forward and see if some of these opinions change, right?" But there are certainly people who come into our, our sessions um, unwillingly, like they're told to go to to these trainings on educational equity, um, and and we do have to overcome some really challenging uh. conversations. But but we are also we work hard to make sure that our instructors are trained 
to manage those situations. Um, and when I say manage, I mean, how do you engage with someone who um, says things that completely do not align with our values as an organization um, and yet still create a safe space for everyone else? Um, and it's definitely a dance definitely a dance <laughs> yeah well that, that and yeah and that's a that's a challenge and there and 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 it points out that there are values underneath all these things and and um respecting that and and allowing diversity in the conversation uh, can help so um i'm looking here at the time we need to take another break i want to um Talk a little bit about, you've been doing this job at NAEP for a while. I want to talk about uh, in the next segment uh, some of your key uh, upside surprises and then uh, um, and uh, talk about some, talk a little bit about some of the, uh, these polarities and, the pol- and some of the polarization that's taking place in our, in our politics um, in connection with identity politics and so forth. We'll do, how about that? Sounds good. So this is um, Big Beacon Radio, and uh, we're with Megan Pollock, and we'll be back um, to talk about uh, polarization, polarities, and, and politics. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education. A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back for our final segment with Megan Pollack from, uh, from NAEP. And, and Megan, we were, uh, we were talking about your experiences at NAEP. And so you've been doing this job, uh, I guess, three or so years. Um, what have been your a couple of your uh, key upside surprises in, in the work? I think the the biggest, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but um, I guess sort of validation is that this work is needed, <laughs> and it's needed more so today than it was um, 
than any other day because I think that the, the society that we live in is ever-changing and evolving and given given some of the, the latest things in the news and the politics and the, uh, as, as you're calling them, polarities happen, um, now is the time. So I think that the, the work that we do to help educators understand and address implicit biases and the power that they have to transform how they educate to increase opportunities for every student, regardless of race, gender, class, ability, disability, to not only succeed in, in learning, but to see themselves in a career in science, technology, engineering, math, or career in technical education uh, is needed. We know that industry is in need of these types of individuals, and we know that we aren't um, we aren't meeting that demand, and that we've got to increase the number of students that are prepared to to go into these fields, and and we need to create a space for for every type of student to see themselves in that. And it shouldn't be limited by their skin color or their gender uh, or any other identity. And so I think the biggest surprise is just a validation that we've got work to do. Yeah, and so in, um, and we've talked a little bit, we've been dancing around polarity since the beginning of the show. So, and and I want us to make a distinction between polarities and polarization. So, um, so we're using polarities in the sense that Barry Johnson, Peter Elbow used the term contraries in an educational context. Uh, uh, educational contexts are rife with polarity. So we talked about rigor versus soft skills. Uh, we've been talking about male and female, technology and humanity, and, and on and on and on. So, um, and one of the points that, that uh, Barry Johnson makes is that these things need each other. Um, and we don't there are certain things we don't get biologically or culturally without both um, uh, men and women. There are certain things that uh, we don't get professionally without both rigor and soft skill. And and but we tend to think of of um, the poles as as a solution sometimes. So when we're sort of lacking women or people of color, we the the um, it becomes a zero-sum game, and the and the dominant pole be, feels challenged, um, even hurt or or criticized for um, the way that it, its its present state, and and it becomes a, a conflict versus um, the and thinking of of polarity management. How do we get? the best of both poles in in a, a given situation and and what's the what are the negative effects when we uh, emphasize one pole too much when we emphasize technical education over uh, shift skills or conversation in action we get a certain kind of professional and that has certain kind that may have negative effects uh, versus a more balanced uh, management of those those poles the same same things true when we when we don't have um, representation in in a in a field. So, um, to what extent? I guess I'm not sure how to even really ask the question, but it just seems like that's a central. And it seems to me that in the 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 NAEP language, that emphasizing the um, the upside of the missing pole and em- emphasizing to those people the, their importance um, is is part of it. But you know uh, how how in your work at NAEP and and in working with others, how how are how is the issue how are the issues of these different polarities addressed? So I think that 
one of the key things that we sort of subtly try to initiate without coming in, you know, full force in this is we, we help people to recognize that there are margins, that there are boundaries and that there are margins and that there are people in those margins that we might not expect and that by being in the margins, they are not having equal access and opportunity to the things that we perceive that they do. And so when you, you're exactly right in how I like to describe, like it's not a zero sum game, but there is this perception that by helping women, by helping people of color enter into technical pathways, that we're taking something away from men. We aren't, right? Like there's there's opportunity enough for for all of us, and that what we're what we're aiming to do is to. Uh, I, I love the TED talk by Chimamanda Adichie, and the it's called the danger of the single story. If you haven't listened to it, please go listen to it. Um, and so what she talks about is this idea that the. the she says the favorite quote is the problem with stereotypes because they exist in everything. The problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue. It's that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. And so when we think about these sort of single stories, there's sort of this archetype of the engineer being this sort of, you know, Dilbert kind of cartoon character. Um, And that, that sort of becomes an established boundary. Like this is what it takes to be an engineer and what, what we're trying to do in educational and workforce equity is to say, let's just expand this boundary, right? We're, like, if we, if we think that to get women and people of color to go into this, that they have to now fit into the same circle, if we have a circle, that they have to fit into the circle, there isn't room, right? Because there's, there's only so much standing room in this little imaginary boundary circle of identity and, and, and thought. But the boundary work that we're trying to do is to say, look, let's just expand the boundary. Let's expand it so that now engineering, the field of technical careers and pathways now has room for people who look like Dilbert and act like Dilbert and think like Dilbert. And then we have room for all other types of personalities and identities around race, gender, class, ability, disability, sexuality. Like there's room for everyone in this space and we need everyone's opinions. And so when we help people understand that there, there's no, no, we're not taking anything away from someone. We're just sort of reallocating the resources that are available to make sure that every person has what they need to succeed. Then it becomes uh, sometimes a little bit more palatable by the people who are not interested in these kinds of these kinds of thinking and concepts. Um, and and so that's really how we manage it and helping to to push forward the. The strategies on educational equity is recognizing that we're we're challenging those single stories, we're expanding boundaries, and we have to to do that. We have to recognize who's on the margins, who's not included, and who's losing out by maintaining the status quo. And you know, this is uh, even in in engineering education has been controversial, and so I've made a distinction between polarities and polarization. And it looks like there's some, possibly some polarization. There was a recent article in the National Review by a, a Michigan State professor who was uh, critical of uh, the engine, in particular, uh, the engineering education program at Purdue. I don't agree with the criticisms that were uh, leveled, but it labeled the new school head Don O'Reilly as a social justice warrior and and uh, uh, kind of denigrating the whole program and the emphasis, these emphases. Um, 
as a as a way to say that 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 kind of the kind of infection of of social justice and um, political correctness that has infected, and I'm using language of the article, not necessarily language that I I agree with, that that kind of infection that has infected the rest of the academy and the deconstruction of the humanities um, um, was was. Um, uh, going to be deleterious to engineering and and uh, cause bridges to be built that would um, would fall down um, uh, and 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 be inadequately designed because losing some of the losing some of the rigor and um, and concentrating on on these other measures. Um, what I, I'm 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 sure that article has probably caused a stir among your colleagues at Purdue, and um, so I'm curious what. Um, what you uh, what the reaction has been, and what your reaction to um, some of those criticisms has been? Well, I don't know if it's caused a stir because I didn't hear about it till you emailed me about an hour before the show. Oh, okay. Um, and so I read it. I'm not surprised. I wanted to go check the moon phases and see what was happening around August second, third, and fourth because James Damore released his Google manifesto, which was a similar tone, right? It's a similar, similar idea to to Wickman's ideas. Um, I I also don't. I cannot speak for Dr. Riley, but um, I don't know that she would be offended to be called a social justice warrior. And if he meant that to be an offense. That would be interesting. Um, I I think that I'm not surprised by his thoughts. Um, I wonder if he has any data that suggests that um, the bridges that have fallen in history were also consisted of teams of diverse people, um, because that would be an interesting comparison if, if that's his benchmark. Um, because I would bet that they weren't. I would bet that they were built by a lot of people that looked the same and uh, what made those bridges fall. And so I think that there can be a belief by individuals to feel like we are taking something away from them, as I, as I mentioned before. And by changing the way that we educate and the way that we engage students in learning and uh, applying their learning uh, in a way that helps every student succeed, uh, that somebody's going to lose out. And and that's just not the case. It's just not the case. Um, we're helping to create spaces that, again, are expanding the, the margins. We're expanding the boundary that allow every student to have opportunity to contribute and learn. And, and again, as I said earlier in the show, when these things happen in the classroom, every student succeeds. Every student succeeds. So yeah. even the white boys succeed when we create equitable learning environments. And we we want to create a space so that every student can succeed. And so um, I certainly disagree with what he's written. Um, I think I'm personally very excited that uh, Donna is at Purdue and, and to see what she's going to, how she's going to lead uh, that department. And um, I've read so much of her work and... Um, I'm okay. a fangirl by all accounts, and um, I'm not surprised by his, his anyway, thoughts. Yeah. 
But oh, I th- think- thanks. And I'm sorry, man. We just run. I, I wanted to give you the last word, but we got we got um, uh, stuck on this on this last topic. But thank you, thanks for um, joining us. Uh, people can find out more if they Google um, Megan Pollock uh, and Nape, and they can find out more about about your work. And and uh, really, thank you for um, uh, joining the show, and thank you for for your work. Thanks so much, Dave. Been listening to Big Beacon Radio Transforming Higher Education. Uh, special thanks to Megan Pollock and Nape. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Uh, join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.